This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right. Good evening, everyone. Ah, welcome to Love Line. We've got a great show planned for you, but we always do. We're going to talk about some mental health myths. That's right. The wellness industry has exploded. Everyone's a life coach now and has something to say about mental health, which on one hand, I like that the dialogue is, is, is out there. We're normalizing, right? We talked about all the celebrities that have come out talking about their mental health struggles and issues, but we still want to be very thoughtful about where we're getting our information from, right? Uh, not every source is reliable, and a lot of things that we've been socialized to believe via pop culture actually aren't healthy. So we're going to talk about some mental health myths. I love things like that. And also we're going to talk about how to reconnect to our sexual selves. We'll be talking about that in the second hour of the show. Um, so that's, you know, what you, what you do when you put the kids to bed <laughs> or you put in the earphones. That's when love, love line gets, gets real erotic. Um, but I wanted to open the show by talking about some stuff in the news. I don't know if you've seen, there's so many commercials now that have gay individuals in them. We saw the first gay Hallmark films coming out. There's a Cadbury egg gay commercial, two individuals, both male identified kissing in beautiful, beautiful embrace. And then, uh, now there's a gay Doritos commercial. Listen. I, I, it's mind blowing for younger individuals. Maybe they're getting more familiar with seeing inclusion and representation in terms of commercials and advertisements. I'm telling you though, this is for me brand new. When I was a kid, you only saw straight people and white people. That's all you saw. And everyone was able-bodied. That's all you saw. It's as though they're the only people that existed or could get cast in a movie or in a commercial. And now we're seeing ads and models that are uh, have different that are differently abled and disabled, that are not cisgender, they're trans, that are black, that are of color, that are larger body, that are gay. It's phenomenal. And that, because that's what the world looks like, right? And everything should reflect back the reality of the world. And everyone needs to learn how to uh, have languaging and encounter all the diverse things that are in the world. That's actually how we do the powerful work of changing. We don't need to, you know, find commonality with people that are, you know, differently, eth you know, ethic have different ethics or, or, or politics. We need to start creating the world we want to be a part of, keeping our head down and doing the work, keeping our head down and demanding change, right? It's not about unification or, or, or changing people's minds. It's about building the world differently and normalizing things and ending problematic things. And so these commercials are so powerful because it normalizes homosexuality and queerness for straight people and reminds straight people that this exists. Children need to know gay people exist. They need to get familiar and comfortable with that. But it also saves the life, the life of someone who is 
gay or part of the LGBTQIA community to know that they are of worth and value. And we know that studies show that over and over that having support and representation decreases suicidality, which is still high for people that are of marginalized identity. So that's so beautiful. It's a Doritos commercial. Who thought a Doritos commercial would ever be so powerful or an ad for Cadbury eggs for Valentine's Day? But it warms my heart. You know what I mean? It, 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 I, I, I'd want my kids to see things like that. That's stunning. And uh, keeping on the uh, gay tip, uh, Sarah Paulson, who I don't know if you guys are aware, her girlfriend, Holland Taylor, the actress, Holland Taylor just had her 78th birthday. And I love this. I love this for so many reasons. I love an, uh, a famous gay couple, but I also love that Sarah Paulson's 46 and her partner, uh, Holland Taylor, the actress, is 78. I love that because love comes in many different forms in terms of gender, but also in terms of age, right? And I love that. And I love that for them. And she did a really adorable, beautiful birthday announcement for her girlfriend. Not really gonna get into that part. That's cute, go look it up. I just really wanted to highlight the importance of having these things around us. Because even though someone might say, well, I'm not in an age gap relationship, my partner's within my age bracket, or I'm not in a gay relationship, you might not be. But seeing diverse creative ways of being might be, maybe will build your confidence in you stepping into some other form of diversity or creativity. You know what I mean? Because it just starts to get that familiar that there's not one right way. There's not one right way to, excuse me, there's not one right way to run your relationship. There's not one right way in terms of gender. And we had on our show um, the, the thruple that put a book out about raising children in a thruple. And it was so, it was so beautiful. Um, so go back and check out that episode where it's a doctor and he was with his partner for I think six years and then they brought in a new partner and the three of them together are raising a child. You know, family and love comes in all diverse ways and I think I love seeing Kamala Harris talking about that where she was saying, you know, for the holidays, her husband, his ex-wife joins them and I love that because we live in a still in a very toxic heteronormative culture that thinks that should be threatening to Kamala Harris. Why would she want her husband's ex to come over? Why, why should that be threatening or bad or wrong? That is a part of his life. And she's probably a phenomenal human being. And just because them being together in a romantic way didn't work out, that doesn't mean they can't still keep all the other things that did. Their friendship. And I love that Kamala is welcoming that in. And now they're a larger family and they spend time together. And that's what it should be about. We should be friends with our exes. We should leave lovingly. Family should look like all different kinds of things. And she even said that. She said, family is what you choose. Family is what you decide. Family isn't something that's mandated or forced upon you. You choose who your family is. That's something that's earned. And so she's another example of just creative, diverse ways of being and how healthy and beautiful that is. So thankful to that. Um, expecting a lot from her. She's got to get a little bit better with how she is with the carceral system. And she historically is anti-sex work. So she's got some work to do, but I, I'm, I've got trust. I've got trust. All right, y'all. That is, um, yeah, that is our segment. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about mental health myths and even defining that word mental health. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we are back We're talking about mental health myths. Really important. I think, gosh, I can't talk enough about this. I think uh, what, what mental health really is, what the definition is, what we should be working towards. Working clinically in my practice, it's really interesting, but also sometimes just plain old disheartening to hear what people are holding themselves and others accountable to in terms of mental health. So we've talked about some of this a little bit. So let's just cover the basic broad strokes and then we'll get into some of the myths, which God bless uh, wellness 
influencer culture, um, just be very thoughtful. Let me make that the disclaimer. Be thoughtful where you're getting your mental health information from. Make sure it's from a licensed mental health professional. There's a lot of people out there. They're trying to do good stuff. I love that. But they don't necessarily have the training or the understanding or the scholarship to really understand what it is they're saying or putting out there. And I've seen some of these people with really big followings and that doesn't mean that they're doing good work. It just means they're saying what people wanna hear. And sometimes it's just wrong or it's reinforcing really problematic paradigms. And I see that a lot around just general definitions of mental health, but also stuff around addiction and whatnot. Um, Remember, mental health, first off, is the ability to engage in a full range of human emotions. People will shame or pathologize certain emotions, being sad, being angry, being frustrated, no, Feel all of them. We've talked about toxic positivity, right? Which is this idea that you always have to feel good and that mental health is always being happy or feeling well. That's not true. That's not honest. Mental health is feeling all human emotions and to feel them deeply. So for someone to say, I'm extremely sad, I'm extremely anxious, that is part of mental health. That is the ability to feel that. We are not trying to be robots. We're not trying to walk around like a Stepford wife God bless those that don't know that reference. Always having a smile on your face. I'm actually worried about the mental health of people that are always happy and always smiling. Why are they ignoring and denying important deep aspects of themselves and of experience? To be alive is to feel sad, depressed, anxious, disappointed, frustrated, or lonely. That is part of the human experience. We need to learn how to allow those things, right? That's mental health. The ability to allow and manage appropriately. There's this image that came out of Eastern philosophy, uh, Buddhism, and it's really beautiful. And it basically has this idea that we want to be able to allow like the clouds or the wind, all the emotions to come and go. We don't have to over attach or over identify with them. We welcome them in. We, we see them, right? We, they're a companion on our journey. We don't have to over attach. We just allow. I'm feeling sad today. Okay. I'm feeling happy today. Okay. Neither have to mean much more than just acknowledging that feeling or that energy in our body, but they don't necessarily mean we need to get rid of them. But we have this idea in the Western Western world that if you're feeling an emotion that are the ones we've determined to be bad or wrong or negative, that the work is to get rid of it, to cure it. You're sad, make sure you're happy. You're anxious, make sure you ground yourself. You're feeling lonely, make sure you connect with someone. No, we have to be able to carry and feel those experiences. I'm okay with someone saying, I'm sad, let me find something to maybe lighten my mood. But first we have to at least just say, it's okay that I'm feeling this way. Why? Because I'm a human. We will all feel that way. Happens sometimes with patients of mine with medication. Oh, I think I need my uh, antidepressant uh, adjusted. I'm feeling sad today. Well, of course you are. The goal of meds are not to remove half of our emotional functioning and thereby only leaving us access to happiness and joy and pleasure. Medications are to make us feel more functional, to decrease the severity of some of our depression or anxiety so we can feel more functional, but it doesn't remove them completely. They're not supposed to. To feel sad or to still feel some depression is a natural healthy response to many things in the world at times, right? So we wanna be able to allow and to feel them. We we don't have to over-identify with them, but that's the first part. Second part, is that mental health is about being able to authentically live our lives based on who we are, just being ourselves, developing the confidence and ability to be ourselves, to be ourselves at work, to be ourselves in our romantic and sexual relationships, to be ourselves with our friends and family members. Authenticity and that liberatory sense is mental health. If you're moving through the world, having to constantly perform and to be other than you are, that is not mental health. Mental health is not about conformity 
Mental health is not about fitting in. Mental health is about being true and authentic to who and what you are, right? And there's this idea that mental health is about just fitting with all the norms of our culture, but often mental health is pushing back and challenging all of that, right? Especially if you're someone who's gay or trans, especially if you're someone who's larger bodied or fat identified, right? We, you're, you're not necessarily going to meet the norms and the standards and ideals, and that's gonna be okay. We're trying to change the world and create space for everyone. But until we get there, it's somewhat of an individual piece of work. But that's why we look at those that are, that are around us and we try to build community. But before I get into mental health myths, I wanted to at least start to develop a working definition of, well, what does mental health look like before we start talking about what it doesn't look like? And we look at these social media posts by influencers and even therapists, and it can give the idea that we should be trying to feel happy and glad and smiley at all times. And that's not honest and that's not possible. Everyone is going to, living in these human bodies, feel what we would call negative or bad emotions. And the job is not to then get rid of them. It's to learn how to allow them, right? We want to sometimes work on not having them with us all the time or having the intensity or severity that it can have. But its mere presence doesn't mean something's bad or wrong. In fact, in a lot of therapy, it's about asking what does it need from us? What is it communicating? Honoring that there's a reason for its presence. And if we just wipe it out and remove, we miss out on what it's trying to communicate. It might be trying to tell us that an area or an aspect or a part of our lives needs to be changed or removed or get more care and attention. Same thing with our body. Some of the symptoms that we try to just get rid of by popping a pill are missing out on our body saying, rest. If we're always grabbing more caffeine or Red Bull, we're not listening to our body saying, we need to rest. <laughs> Don't push through, rest. <laughs> Sometimes our body is sore saying, don't keep doing what you're doing. Something that's a part of your life isn't working, right? Sleep disturbance. We don't need to just take a sleeping pill. We might need to say, what in my life is making me uneasy or anxious? What do I maybe need to attend to? So when you start thinking something that feels off or wrong, say, what might it be drawing attention to? What might need changing or healing in my life? All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about mental health myths. Question of the night, as always, is up on our Loveline IG page. And I uh, want to listen to some past Loveline episodes. Go over to wearechannelq.com. But coming up next, like I said, talking about some mental health myths. You're listening to Loveline, <clears throat> excuse me, with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and we're talking about mental health myths. Now, in our last segment, we were talking about, well, you know, we, we're going to talk about what mental health is not, but uh, then, then, then what is it? <laughs> and uh, we kind of laid that out. It's about being authentic, fully embodying and living who and what you are, and also the ability to feel a full range of human emotions and to feel them deeply. We're not trying to get away from a whole set of them and say that's bad or wrong, never feel that. That's actually the opposite. That's toxic positivity. That's actually welcoming mental illness or mental disorder. So what are some of the myths? Well, the first one is that people with mental illness are more dangerous than the general population. And we'll use that to really pathologize someone. That's uh, their mental illness. We have to be afraid of mentally ill people. Um, that's not actually the, the case. Um, People that struggle with mental health are no more dangerous than those in the general population. In fact, people with mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of violence. They're more vulnerable. 
right? Because their inability to maybe set boundaries, to take care of themselves, the places they find themselves in. So people that struggle with mental health and mental illness need more care, support, and structure, but they're not inherently more dangerous people out in the world. And that's, we need to change that because we often shame or pathologize. We other, oh, that person's mentally ill, or they're dealing with a drug and alcohol addiction, or they're, they're, they're struggling to find employment and housing. And so they're other, they're bad, they're wrong. We have to worry about their mental health. Um, not the case. Look at our president. <laughs> One of the most sociopathic, problematic people we've had in a very long time. And that person really didn't have any mental illness. It depends on your definition. Some people will say, well, that sociopathy and that narcissism is mental illness. And there is a world in which I do agree with that. But it's more his, um, it's more capitalism. It's more his white supremacist thinking. It's it's more, um, you know, him, him thinking more in terms of profit than in terms of the needs of people, right? And that's more of a personality thing. That's more of the culture he's a part of. The culture we're still trying to dismantle, even with Biden now being in the White House. Another mental illness myth is that people with mental illness or addiction are weak. Um, they're not. There's a, there's a lot of causes of mental illness and things like addiction, and we now know it's not a disease. It's trauma-based. They're responsive trauma. The more trauma someone's had in their lives, especially in their early life, sets themselves up for a higher risk of drug and alcohol addiction, mental health struggles, and also um, psychosis. Uh, three, three forms of trauma are really setting you up to have a direct cause of addiction and psychosis. Um, and so we do look at the outcomes. We know what, what, how, if you have one trauma, two, three, or more, what that, what that kind of impact is, is it correlation or causation still, you know, the jury's still out, but those threads and those connections still matter. Another mental illness myth is that people with mental illness are making it up. You know, again, we talk about this all the time where biological struggles, illnesses, or injuries are visible. And we often in our culture only trust that which we can see or measure. We're so obsessed with our five senses. If I can't see it, feel it, or hear it, well, then I'm not going to believe it. It exists. But mental health and the most powerful things in our, in our world, like trust, love, relationship, you can't access those with your senses. You can't smell that or see that or hear that. It's a felt sense. It's phenomenological. It's your own personal lived experience, and that matters. Mental illness is an internal thing. We, it is not externalized all the time. Physical impairment or disability is, but mental health isn't. And so we, we, we don't take it seriously. We don't prioritize it. We think people are making it up. We say, toughen up, get over it, right? When someone's sad, lonely, depressed, isolated, struggling with their relationship to food, alcohol, drugs, they need people that are going to legitimize that and say, I hear you. If you're in pain, then the pain is real. We need to be able to use that with partners, with employers, our businesses, our jobs, our careers. We need to be able to say, I'm sad today. I'm really depressed. I'm struggling with my anxiety. You know, if you're able to get out of whatever the responsibility is because you broke your leg, that same has to be afforded to someone who's saying, I'm very depressed or very anxious today. We have to be able to do that. People cannot say that they're taking mental health seriously if they're not going to afford the same rights, right, and protections that we do for physical injury. Um, another myth that they're just wanting attention. Attention seeking is so heartbreaking because I hear that applied often more than I want. Also, another myth is that mental illness can be fixed in the same way medical conditions are. And that's not true. There's so many factors that can create a mental health struggle. It's not just like laser focus. Like if you broke that bone, we just go in and fix it, right? Mental illnesses are impacted by and often caused by things like socioeconomics, trauma. So part of you know, really trying to change and improve people's mental health is helping people find housing, helping people get a living wage. That is how we really handle the drug on the, the war on drugs, get people housing, employment and homes and access to resources. That's how we really work on mental health. Those basic needs have to get met. 
but we can't cure medical, we can't cure mental health conditions the way we can medical conditions, right? And so people do need, do need community and resources and access to therapy. We have to worry, we have to focus on that. Um, medication is not always a solution. It can help for some people sometimes, right? But that's not always the, the, the cure, the quick silver bullet. The best outcomes often are when people have a combination of therapy and medication or changing their environment. You can't take someone out of a bad environment where they don't have access to the things they need, which are driving these mental health struggles, and then think we're going to put them in rehab or inpatient and then put them back out in that bad environment and think they're going to thrive and do well, right? If a plant's not doing well where it is, we change the soil or move it into more sunlight. We don't shame and yell at the plant and say, learn how to do well in this horrible, unnurturing, unnourishing, unnurturing environment, right? Children experience mental illness. People with wealth or status experience mental illness, right? But there is recovery from that. And that's the final landing point is there is shift. There is change. There are resources. We just have to take advantage of them. All right, y'all coming up next, DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, it is time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This DM says, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Isabel. About four months ago, I broke up with my girlfriend of three years. Long story short, it had been about two years since we had sex because she was scared and didn't feel comfortable with a woman anymore. Oof. Anyway, about three months ago, I met this other girl, Marisol, and she's incredible. We don't have a problem with sex, but she's extremely insecure. She thinks I still have feelings for my ex emotionally, just not physically. The reason she thinks this is because we share a dog. Marcel thinks I need to let go of my dog and just give it to my ex. And I told her that just because I don't, just because I want to see my dog doesn't mean I still have feelings, but it's clear it's an issue. Do you think I should give up my dog? There is so much in here. (laughs) So much in here. Number one, no. We don't need to give up anything to make our partner comfortable. Your partner needs to grow up. Your partner's engaging in what we call toxic monogamy. Your partner thinks that it's your job to never let them be frustrated or disappointed, and that's not accurate. It's okay to sometimes set a boundary and say no, because not everyone's insecurity or jealousy is justified and legitimate. Like this example, you're allowed to share a dog. You're allowed to be friends with your ex. You're allowed to still have feelings for your ex. I love all of my exes still, and I continue to, and will hope to always. Why? Because they were important, meaningful people in my life for many years. And just because we decided not to be romantic or sexual anymore, doesn't mean I need to remove them from my life. And I will only date adults, which means if you enter my life, like the relationship I'm in now, my exes remain in my life as well, because no one tells me as an adult who my friends are when I have, when I'm worthy of trust and have good boundaries. And so I continue to talk to and see my exes because I demand trust from people in my life. And if someone wants to be in my life romantically and doesn't trust me, that's on them to figure out. But it's not my job to change my life around and make them comfortable. So Marisol is a little immature and has some growing up to do. No, you do not give up your dog. And you say, in fact, you need to work on your insecurity because I can't continue to change my life around to honor that. Yes, my ex was with me for three years. Yes, I intend to have them in my life. Yes, they're important to me. Yes, I want to still talk to her and see her sometimes. And yes, if you're gonna be in my life, you enter it with those who were already in it, still in it. And if that doesn't work for you, then we are not right as a couple because I will not drop my bar down and meet you where you're at because there's a lot of immaturity in there and toxic 
toxic forms of monogamy, which are actually emotionally abusive. She wants you to give up your dog because she's uncomfortable with the fact that you want to see your dog. I have so many red flags in there. So I think Marisol may be someone you should actually break up with until she grows up a little bit because that's a big ask. And I'm afraid of what else is going to make this person uncomfortable because there's absolutely no reason on this planet why you should not see your dog or your ex. Because if you're not worthy of trust, then she shouldn't trust you and you have work to do. But if you are worthy of trust, then it's her stuff and it's not your responsibility to dance around it, walk on eggshells and accommodate it. Because our triggers show us where our work is. We can't misuse triggers and weaponize them and say, I'm triggered, which means I don't think you should do that thing. No, you say to Marisol, if something makes you uncomfortable, that's for you to learn about where your work is and where you need to work on empowering yourself and learning to trust. Because if you don't trust me, you say to Marisol, then we don't even have a relationship right now. And I've done nothing that says you shouldn't trust me. So the work is on her. She needs to grow up. And I say that very lovingly. But these are the kinds of questions that frustrate me because we, we normalize these things. Because I'm sure Marcel's got tons of friends that are like, that's messed up. She shouldn't be doing that. And it's like, her friends need to grow up too. You know what I mean? So check that. Check that quick. And maybe you'll realize I need to be with somebody else because this is a mess. Because these kinds of things grow. When we start letting people be that emotionally abusive, they feel empowered and they start thinking anytime they're uncomfortable, because she'll probably go through your phone. She might think it's acceptable to tell you you can't see other friends or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So cut that stuff out right now and see if she can grow up enough to meet you where you're at. Uh, because dear God, we're allowed to be friends with our exes. And that that's something we all need to culturally get more familiar and comfortable with. Um, it's exhausting being in relationships with people that, want to try to control us because they're uncomfortable. You know what I mean? So anyway, bam, blam, there it is. Let me know how it goes though. Circle back and tell me. Y'all sometimes do. I really do mean it when I ask you to circle back and tell me. Anywho, <laughs> moving on from that one, <laughs> we're going to talk about ways to uh, re-sexualize yourself. That's right. Stick around for that one. COVID has detached us from love, sex, affection. We're confused. We don't even know how to get back to it. We're going to talk about that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. Okay, we're back talking a lot about mental health. Now let's switch gears a little bit and get into uh, sexual health. Yep, it's that time of the night. Hope the kids are in bed. <laughs> if they're hanging out with you, it's time to uh, reorient them back to the television. But um, look, we're, we're, we're going through a lot. It's been a rough year last year. <laughs> It doesn't mean that this year has been better for everyone. So I'm always trying to hold space and empathize with the fact that we're, we're trying to do the work we need to do psychologically, sexually, in relationship to our bodies and whatever else is going on, while in the context of um, a million other threads of things that are pulling us in different directions and overwhelming us. But sexuality is something that, um, you know, I'm always trying to explain this to uh, patients in my practice and new people that enter, that it's it's all intertwined. It's all a very combined, intersectional constellation of things. And what that means in, in basic terms is just, you can't say, mm, well, that area is a struggle and it doesn't impact any other part of me. It does, right? And our general self-esteem, which is what we have to access when we're going on a date, being a parent, going into work, whatever it is, just feeling great in the duration of our day, that is made up of our body esteem, our sexual esteem. And because we live in a very sex-phobic, sexually avoidant culture, many people haven't heard terms like that. 
maybe we're more familiar with our body esteem, maybe not having heard that word, but we don't realize that self-esteem is made up all the, of all these factors. It does matter. How do you feel in relationship to your body? Do you feel desirable? How do you feel in relationship to the things that turn you on? Do they make you feel bad, broken, gross? Are you fully engaging in the sex you want to have? Is your full body being utilized erotically? Or are we avoiding per certain areas? You know, there's a couple ways we can check in on our erotic or sexual self-esteem, right? Let's talk about it. How do we feel about the things that turn us on, right? How do we feel about our turn-ons? That matters. How do we feel about our body? Are there parts of our bodies that we avoid? How much intimacy can we tolerate? Do we have sex in positions and ways where we can't fully see or be seen, right? And those are a couple indicators that there's some work to do. Why do I need to have sex in positions where I can't see or be seen? Why do I wanna always have the lights completely off? Why are certain areas of my body only the ones that are able to be touched, right? Why am I not able to vocalize and ask for all the things that I'm interested in and I want to try? Is it because of my own anxiety and fear? Is it because of the partner I'm with? Is it their health, right? <clears throat> and, and that's where the work begins because we carry that with us. Even though we might think, well, how does that matter when I'm parenting or I'm, I'm grocery shopping or I'm at the office? Well, because it, it's a brick in the wall that is our total self-esteem. If we're moving through the world feeling bad, consciously or unconsciously about an element of us because we're hiding our bodies, even at work, right? Because it's our non-sexual body that matters too. Well, it's really hard for us to stand in our power. <clears throat> and that's why I love working with the body, the sexual body, the psychology, the sexual psychology, because it's different entry points. And it's an area where in our culture, it's one of the areas that's not mirrored. When we're children, we get mirrored in all the elements of us, our intelligence, our athleticism, right? Our personality style, but our sexuality goes unmirrored until we start having sex. And that happens at various ages. And we're magically supposed to understand how to access that, how to integrate that, how to make sense of that, how to work with that. And we're not given the tips or the tools. All this to say, if some of these questions or topics are making you feel anxious, are making you go, oh, I wonder, you, you have work to do, right? Most of us will. We're up against our gender. What does our gender mean in the world? How does that limit us, right? How does our sexual orientation limit us? What does that mean in relationship to our body? Where we'll let ourselves be touched? What we'll engage in? Same thing as I said gender a minute ago. How does our gender limit what parts of our body will let be utilized or utilized? Because none of that's real or honest. Healthy sexuality is outside of all these terms, gender, sexual orientation, all those things limit and confine. They're metaphors, they're labels to help us identify and make a little bit of sense, but it doesn't speak to our totality and all that we are. And it often leaves parts of us unacknowledged, unaddressed, unattended to, uncared for, right? It can develop a lot of shame. So we're starting to work on developing our sexual self-esteem. It has global impacts. And that's why I think right now, for those that have the time and energy, it's a great time to do this work. People are talking about all sorts of things, new hobbies, career advancements, going back to school, getting new skills. Some people are getting into therapy. This is work you can do, even if you're single or solo, even if you're single, solo, or asexual. This is work that is important and can be done. And in our next segment, we'll kind of talk about what that looks like and how to address that. But I want to just frame this moment that this is important for all of us and it's never too late and it never doesn't matter. I, I work with so many people at different stages of their lives and different stages of relationship, different stages of career. They start to say, I, I notice that there's, that there's a, uh, my shadow. This is the shadow side of me and I want to bring light to it. I want to better understand myself. I want to enhance my total self-esteem and this is a way to do it. Or I didn't realize that 
this, these parts holding me back or holding me back in other areas. I didn't realize they'll say that working through this gives me the confidence to work through other things that are anxiety inducing or make me anxious, right? Because <clears throat> psychology is so much bigger than these single threads. We don't leave, we don't leave, we don't live single lives with identity, nor do we live, excuse me, I can't talk, single lives within psychological pieces. So we come back, we'll talk about what to focus on to do this work. It's work you can do alone, even more powerful doing it with a therapist, especially someone who's certified. Uh, question of the night, as always, is up on our Loveline IG page and uh, Loveline past episodes over at wearechannelq.com. So coming up next, we're gonna talk about how to do the work of exploring your self-sexually, but also um, DMs later. You listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and we're talking about ways to get back in touch with our sexual sides. And for some people, it's not a circling back or getting re-in-touch because maybe they've moved away or they've um, not really made it a priority. For others, it's the first time that they're really doing this work. Some people are listening to this segment and they're saying, I never realized that that was an area to do that work. Some people really compartmentalize it and they think, look, sex is just that thing I do. It's just natural. It is what it is. I do it once, you know, when I have a partner at home or with myself and it's like, no, it's ubiquitous. It's always with us. Our sexuality is always in operation and always in play. Our sexuality is in action and our sexual psychology, when we, when we decide what to wear in the morning, how we want to be seen, how we want to look, what parts of our body do we want to be seen or highlight or not see, how much eye contact do we make or not make, right? How all our sexuality is always in play. It's not just that we maybe are fantasizing or noticing attractive things as we're walking down the street. It's so woven into so many different parts of ourselves that it's really meaningful work. So the first thing we can do is we know that the pandemic is going to exhaust us and distract us. And part of sexuality and desire and sexual energy is about having global generalized energy. If we're stressed out and burnt out, it's understandable that we're not gonna really feel libidinal, passionate life energy. So we do wanna compare how were things before the pandemic versus how they are now to get a better understanding of maybe what is really a result of COVID, right? Um, and also setting some goals. Maybe the way it was before is less or less accessible than it is now. Maybe this time home, time together is actually enhanced. It doesn't actually, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's depleting or, you know, reducing, reductive, as they say. Um, you also want to carve out time to do this work. I know we have busy lives and we carve out time to do so many things. I see people talking about getting up early to do these workouts, right? Um, coming home and learning a new language. It's about prioritizing and you have to care enough to build in time for this. It doesn't take a lot of time, but you have to build in the time to say, I want to, I want to do this work. I want to track this. I want to read up on this. So you have to find time, you know, and that's what we have to do with any priority. And you have to also recognize that our sexuality is an open-ended system. It's never just, we find out what gender we're attracted to and then the work is done. It's always changing. What turns us on, what doesn't, what parts of our body we enjoy pleasure or drive pleasure from and don't. That shifts based on medication, age, how we feel about our aging and changing body. Maybe your abilities change, disabilities emerge or, or they're resolved or they're shifted or our confidence around it changes, right? All of that will change our sexuality. It's an open system. You have to remember that. It's not something that is just, I'm gay, straight, bi, pan, oh, work is done. No, as we, as we grow and change, we, we find pleasure in new things. We're introduced to new things, right? We acknowledge new levels of desire, right? And then you wanna also tap into the senses. We often try to just make it about touch. We forget that we can add smells, sights, sounds. 
We often don't vocalize. We often stay very silent. What parts of your body do you not engage? Why can we start to? Do you always rush through solo sex or partnered sex? Why? Can we start to let ourselves be seen? Can we start to allow some light? Maybe it's even just candlelight. Can we try being sexual at times of the day when we normally don't? Can we let sex make it, can we let sex be inconvenient? Prioritize it instead of something else. How do we feel? Do we feel desirable? What do we need to wear to feel desirable or desired? That's often very gendered. People that are female, female presenting or female identified often are very aware of what makes them feel sexy. The male individuals, trans or cis, often don't. They don't know what makes them feel hot or sexy. Explore that. What do you need to do or wear to make yourself feel in the mood or desirable to another? Because if we don't feel desirable to ourselves, it's going to be really hard to present self to other if we don't like what it is that we're trying to offer to the other. Sometimes we need to get more embodied by movement, any form of movement, dancing, yoga, weightlifting, running, stretching, Hula hooping, I don't care, but getting back into your body, realizing that we tend to not move our total body. We tend to actually be very stiff. Again, certain, it can be very gendered as well. Certain genders are more comfortable having more fluidity in their hips. Others, we're very stiff. We pull our anatomy back and in so it doesn't get bumped, right? We're afraid to allow our our anatomy to be pronounced or seen. We hide, we tuck it in. Often we're afraid to just vocalize and talk about feeling in the mood. Even if we're in a long-term committed relationship, those times can sometimes make it more fragile and we start to close up even more. We're afraid of being rejected. We live in a world where people that are hypersexual or confidently sexual get slut-shamed, seen as less than or obsessed. We use words like sex addict, which aren't real, as a way to shame people that want sex that we're not comfortable with or wanting it more than we're comfortable hearing about, right? We kink shame. Someone gifts us with the intimacy of sharing what turns them on and we say gross or we say ooh. Or we talk that way, thereby indicating unconsciously to the person who's listening, you can't ever tell me who you really are. And that's really disheartening when people are in monogamous relationships because the partner's limit becomes their limit, right? And that's why we do have to explore and talk about these things to see if we're sexually compatible and if the chemistry's there. That can't just be assumed because we have other things in common or we really enjoy each other and want to be together. These things matter. So now's the time to really ask yourself all these difficult questions. Why are you avoiding it? Why does this segment make you uncomfortable? Why would you not want your partner to know or hear about this segment? Maybe you need to have them listen to it, listen to it together. Go read a book. I wrote two books, Sex Outside the Lines and Rebel Love, both of them in service of helping people do this work together alone. Use my books as a workbook. Read them together. Read them aloud to each other. Talk about what you learned, what you heard. Most important thing is often what made you uncomfortable and why. That shows you where the work is. What do you want to remember and reinforce? Now's a beautiful time to work on our sexual esteem and our sexual health. It's not just about doing those home workouts to get that, uh, whatever they say, you know, those, those rock hard abs. Maybe work on your psychology instead, you know, or, or cut the time in half or split it up. But do this work, it's important, I promise you. You do this work, you move through the world with your head held higher, feeling even more confident, more desirable. All ties together. That's the interesting thing thing about psychology is it can't be as compartmentalized as we like to think. And sex is far bigger and carried with us more so than just what happens in the bedroom. And again, if you're solo or asexual, this is still important work and work you can do on your own. You know, reconnecting with your own relationship to yourself. All right, y'all, that is that. Uh, We're going to be closing out the show with some DMs. Um, 
Hope you're also checking out the live stream show. It's still kicking. Uh, it exists still. I'm listening live, although new episodes aren't necessarily going to be rolling out in the future. We've had a great time doing it. They still exist online, so check those out. Um, all right, y'all, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, y'all, we're back. Now it is time for question of the night. President Obama revealed that he certainly asked about UFOs during his presidency. I love that. But he can't tell us what he found out. <laughs> I love that tease. Yeah, I asked. And of course, I found some stuff out. But y'all can't be told. Why can't we be told? That's my question. Why can't you tell us what you know? I believe in UFOs. Of course, I believe in aliens. I think it's more ridiculous not to believe in it. We really are so um, human-centered uh, or Earth-centered or however you want to look at it that we think that only we exist. Really? Are you aware that there's colors and, and sounds that you can't see or hear? Are you aware that there's um, particles and atoms and things that you can't touch? So there's so much going on around us. There's more going on around us that we can't access with our senses than what we can. Like really know that. We usually only trust our five senses and there's so much going on around us that we can't access with just those five senses. And the most important things in the world can't be accessed with those senses. Things like love, relationality. You can't touch that or see that or hear that or smell that. We have to get less, we have to, we're such materialists. If we can't weigh it or count it, we're too scientific in our thinking in that way. Science has limits. Science isn't fact. Science is a method of understanding the world, but it has its limits. Um, so I love topics like this. So the question is, what government conspiracy would you most want to know about? For me, it would be the alien thing. And I want to know why we can't know what you know, Obama. Um, there's a lot of bad documentaries on that stuff. It's That's what's unfortunate. <laughs> it's the documentaries on UFOs and aliens just tend to be really janky. Um, although, although Dark Skies is an alien movie that is one of my absolute favorite films. Um, I think it's pretty, pretty badass. So check that out. But um, anyway, question is what government conspiracy would you want to know more about? Can't wait to hear. The first person said, is the world run by one family group? Well, we know this much. We know that we live in a capitalist culture, so it's definitely run by the wealthy and uh, there's very few of them and they're all interconnected. The more I do the work I do, in all the different levels, I do start to see the um, the network. Yes, so there is something to that. Someone else said aliens. Yeah, that's my curiosity as well. Um, you know, we have technology. We're aware that there's a lot going on beyond us. Aliens don't necessarily mean some kind of human form or something material, uh, but they exist. Other cultures see and talk to ghosts. You know, again, we're so American centric. We're so Eurocentric. We're so, you know, human centric. But um, other cultures have other methods of accessing other forms of consciousness and other planes of reality. It's just do the research. Shamanism. Um, in some Asian cultures, after the loss of a loved one, in Spanish culture, you go and you spend time with the dead and honor them. I mean, there's these different beautiful entry points. We just also have a powerful fear of death here in our culture. Question night, what government conspiracy would you most want to know about? Someone else said JFK. Oh, so interesting. So I was in Texas where he was shot, and it's fascinating. In that square where it happened, there's a lot of people out there talking about the conspiracy that they of, of surrounding all of that quite fascinating when you look at the photos, the data, the information. Definitely leaves you with some questions. Um, 
Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one, the JFK one. Uh, someone else said, okay, but what really happened in Roswell, New Mexico? See, again, there's a really bad, really bad TV show about Roswell, but some of us younger. Um, I'm curious about that as well. Secrets. Anytime there's secrets where they're like, ah, oh, government secret, or you can't enter this area. Of course, the curiosity spikes. Someone else said, uh, what really is Guantanamo Bay? What's out there? A lot of heinous, heinous things happen there. A lot of xenophobia and racism happen at Guantanamo Bay. Um, a lot of militarism. But uh, yes, what else is going on? That which we know is not good. Again, the question tonight is what conspiracy theory would you most want to know about? Uh, someone else said Area 51. Tell us. See, I'm telling you. It's very alien-centric. People want to know. Someone please make a really good documentary about it because the ones that are out there are just kind of like, eh. Uh, we'll stop on this one. Someone said the Denver airport. So scary. I don't get it. I'm assuming you're being funny. I don't know why that Denver airport. <laughs> but you know what, dude? Get some money together. Do a documentary on the airport. I, you know what? I'm one of those people where I like documentaries about some of the most banal, benign things. I, I really love human interest pieces. I don't mind watching someone exploring like the world of whatever it is. So I'd watch. I just watched a really good documentary on a mall, the closing of a mall, you know? So I'd watch one on, a, on an airport. Airports are interesting places. The amount of people coming from wherever, going wherever, there's stories there. Why are you here? Where are you off to? Whenever I've been forced, because for me it's force, I'm not about small talk. Usually at an airport or an airplane, I'm trying to read, I'm trying to zone out. But whenever I'm forced into conversation, it's never dull. It's always interesting what they're doing. It's rarely just seeing family. It's interesting work stuff or life events. I don't know. I find it fascinating. So good conversation can come from that. That and also talking to your Uber drivers. Yep. It's also just called being friendly. All right, y'all. Question tonight, as always, is back up. That's on our Loveline IG page in the stories, weighing on that. And uh, coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This DM says, hey, Dr. Chris, the pandemic has taken a toll on everyone. But I feel like my parents are suffering a lot. They're both over 65 and they're so afraid to leave the house. I live two hours from them, but they won't let me come over even if I'm being safe. They have me order their groceries through an app. They sanitize their mail. They won't even sit in their backyard because their neighbor sometimes has people over and they think the particles are going to float over. They haven't gotten the vaccine yet, so maybe that will help their panic. But is there anything I can do to help ease their stress? Uh, it's tough. Some of it's reasonable. I mean, it's unsafe to go out. I'm sorry. It just is. The only 100% way to be safe is to stay home. Social distancing and wearing masks is not 100% effective. We know that. And so I don't want to say show them the research because the research is going to support what they're saying. You're right. It does hang around in particles. People have gotten it from entering an elevator after someone got left it. Um, so I want them to worry. This is life or death. I'd rather them over worry than under worry. You know, and so uh, I don't really know what your concern is. They're still living their lives. They're just having groceries delivered. Okay. They're cleaning their mail. I'm cool with that. And they don't want to go outside because their neighbors people over. Okay. They'll be all right. I don't, it doesn't sound like a mental health issue. It sounds like they're just doing their thing. It sounds like you're uncomfortable and I appreciate that. And I honor that. So I'm glad you're helping to take care of them, but this isn't forever. They, they'll get vaccinated soon. They're, they're 
allowed to get vaccinated now. So it's only going to be a couple of months. So maybe kind of calm yourself down. They're, they're together. They're good. They're watching their movies. They're doing their thing. They don't need to be in the backyard. If they don't want, they'll be okay. You know what I mean? They don't need to be pumping around at Target shopping. I'd rather them not. If they're over 65, I'd rather them stay home. My mom's over 65. I told her, stay the hell home. I told her, don't go out for anything. If she's at home reading, doing crossword puzzles, watching movies, living her best life. She has my brother giving her food. Um, so I'm okay with it. I want people to take this seriously. They could get something and die. Imagine if you push them out into the world and there your mom is at the supermarket and comes home with COVID. You know what I mean? The backyard thing, eh, you know, it's, it's not as reasonable as the other things. So maybe you could talk to them about being outside and how long particles stay in the air. But at the end of the day, like it's really not that deep. And I'd rather people be overcautious than undercautious. You know what I mean? Like we're seeing some people take some massive risks. Some people don't even wear masks. I'm heartbroken to see that. Even here in Los Angeles, there are some treatment centers where people aren't wearing masks, right? There are people in Florida running around, carrying on like nothing's going on. I'm worried about that but your parents will be okay not leaving the house if they're getting all their needs met, right? And if they're getting all their needs met, then we are happy, they're safe, we are, we are feeling good about that one. So no, I don't want you to do anything. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So let that be. And that's what's interesting, I think, in some of these questions is that sometimes it's about our anxiety and we want someone else to be doing something or living differently so we feel better. But it's not about you. People don't need to change their behavior so you don't have to struggle anymore with an emotion. They're content and they're happy with what they're doing. So it's your work. If you're uncomfortable, it's your issue. And if it's your issue, it's your job to solve it, not theirs, right? If they're not complaining, then there's no problem for them. Leave them be, right? You're the one that seems uncomfortable and I'm not 100% clear why. So anyway, let them do their thing. I, I, I would be so concerned if my mom was going all over the place, sitting outside because accidents happen. And that's like the elevator thing. I heard two stories of someone using an elevator in a building <laughs> and uh, that's where they think the transmission occurred. And there's even a story of someone entering one of those uh, outdoor restaurant bubble things and possibly getting it from that as well. If it's too safe, to, if it's not safe enough to eat in a restaurant, we shouldn't be going out to eat, period. And I appreciate those that want to get takeout, get takeout to keep restaurants going. And I appreciate people that, you know, I don't know, y'all. It's a mess right now, but um, I'm, I'm glad your parents aren't going out. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a public health professional and I'd rather lean on being too cautious if it's not negatively impacting us than being under cautious. And that will always be uh, kind of my stance, you know? All right, y'all, that is our show. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. If you've got a DM, drop it in our Loveline IG page in the DMs. Uh, past episodes, we are channelq.com. Go on over there. You can download, post, share. And we still got some time left in your night. Focus on some self-care, some joy, pleasure, and rest. Rest, rest, rest. It's both how much sleep you're getting, but also the quality of sleep. So put those phones down. Go to bed a little bit earlier. It's going to serve you. And uh, as I'm doing, trying to drink more water. But all right, y'all. Thanks for hanging out. And you guys have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your night.